you are not going to get to the end of this thing if you're not excited about getting to the end of this thing. There are many, many stops on the way where you're like, you know what? This is too fucking hard. If you don't care about getting to the finish line, if you're not passionate, the odds that you get there are pretty low. We know how hard it is to find and afford the A players who will help your startup succeed. But don't despair. Instead, talk to our friend of the pod until now. Until now gives you access to top tier fractional experts so you don't have to settle. I've worked with these folks at Airtasker and they're behind the rebrand of this very podcast. They are the real deal. Check out their work and get in touch at untilnow.com.au. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And on today's show, we're talking about the 17 traits of a next-level product manager, what to look for, and how to act if you want to create products that are powerful, engaging, and addictive, and how to bring the whole company along with you. Now, it's important to note, no one has all of these traits, but the more senior you are, the broader and deeper you should expect to be, and the broader and deeper you should expect your great product managers to go in your company. Yeah, Nev, this is going to be a fun one. This is based on an article I wrote and sent out on my newsletter, so it'll be fun to go through it with you. 17, Chris. I'm looking forward to this. If we have any chance of doing it in one episode, we better jump in. So let's start with number one, empathy. Yeah, that's right. Empathy. So as I keep saying on the show, I'm a huge TV and movie nerd, and I watch a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff about TV and movies as well. And one of the things that strikes me about acting is that it's about putting yourself in the shoes of other people. It's really about learning empathy. And it strikes me that product management is equally about empathy. It's about putting your feet in someone else's shoes, putting your mindset in someone else's mind, and having a level of shared suffering and shared cognitive states in order to take them on a journey from where they are to where you want them to be. And so empathy is a really, really powerful skill, both for actors and for product managers. And it's just really the ability to relate to the problem, relate to the person, and relate to them throughout the journey, throughout the user experience, and throughout all of your choices and all of the details of your product. And I actually love that you brought up actors, because I think one thing that's true, whether you're a product manager or an actor, is you have your own perspective, you have your own story, you have your own journey, and yet that is not what you want to bring when you are creating your product or when you're acting in a movie, right? And what I mean is, I think the less empathetic product person, whether it's a product manager or not, they think, what would I want from this product? What would be right for me? Which is just human, right? And so to actually be able to override that and say, no, it's not about building a product for myself. It's about building a product for my audience, for my user base. And perhaps, depending on what you're building, you as a product manager are a member of that user base. But you need to broaden out your empathy and think more broadly, how do I put myself in someone else's shoes and see my product and understand my product from their point of view? And that is a difficult skill. Although there is an innate level of talent that people might have for empathy, 
This is a skill that needs to be honed and learned and invested in over time. And it comes from talking to users. It comes from going through these mental exercises. Again, good actors, especially method actors, they try to inhabit the character that they're in. And that means they need to do a lot of learning, a lot of research, a lot of spending time with the sorts of people that they are trying to represent on screen. And I actually think that's just a really great analogy for what a product manager needs to do as well. Yeah, and often it's really easy to have your empathy derailed or distracted by the perceived business constraints or operational constraints or engineering constraints. And for me, empathy is one of the best ways of seeing through all that noise and saying, I get what we need as a business. I get what engineering thinks is difficult. I get what ops doesn't want to do in the field. But to some degree, I have a healthy level of disregard for that nonsense. What does my user need? But at the same time, you need empathy as a product manager to empathize with your internal stakeholders who are sharing their pain, their suffering of like, hey, I'm in sales and I can't sell this product unless you do this thing. Or, hey, I'm in ops and I can't operationalize that in the field. And it's like having a a certain degree of empathy for that and speaking with empathy about that while making sure that your empathy always rests with the right ultimate stakeholder, which is your end user. The next essential trait of a next level product manager is common sense. I can't tell you how many times I bump into product managers who are deep, deep in the weeds of A-B testing everything, formulating a hypothesis and a test for every decision, using frameworks and rice and agile and like so much stuff where the answer is staring them straight in the face, where there is really straightforward best practices, really simple answers, pragmatic and naive things that will just get you to fast forward to the future using just sense that everybody should have laying at their fingertips. It doesn't require experience. It doesn't require taste. It just requires you to lift your gaze from the map and look at the terrain. And when we were interviewing at Uber, we would often ask very straightforward questions. We never had questions like, you know, how many tennis balls can you fit in a 747? And one of the things we would talk about is like, okay, let's imagine we want to build Uber for kids and we want only great drivers. How would you solve that, Mr. Candidate? product manager. And they would say, well, you know, we can put their phone on the dashboard and we can track if there are stop signs and see if they're stopping at stop signs when there's kids on board. And we can use the accelerometer to detect hard braking and hard turning. And we can analyze this and analyze that. And it's like, nah, man, we already know who the five-star drivers are. We can just assign only five-star drivers to pick up kids. You don't need AI and accelerometers and computer vision. You just need to use the data you have on hand. And it doesn't have to be more or less complicated than that. And so that's what we mean by common sense. Yeah, you know, there's that old saying, common sense isn't very common, which uh, I think is is true. But what you're really talking about here is a drive for simplicity as well, right? For not overcomplicating things. And I always enjoy that midwit meme format where you've got the bell curve and you've got like the low IQ person who just has some sort of simple idea. And then you have the person in the middle of the bell curve, the average person, and they put huge amounts of complication into it. Let's analyze it, let's A-B test or whatever. And then you get to the sort of Jedi level genius and they've got the same simple idea as the simple seeing through the complexity and the distractions and the noise to the simple truth underneath something is a powerful skill and it's a skill but it's also a tendency right it comes in a sense from a level of confidence that you don't need to overcomplicate things because you have an ability to see truth absolutely 
All right, the next one is taste, being an aesthetic guru. And the first two are about listening to your gut and listening to your intuition about other people. And then common sense is about understanding what is regular and well understood and well known and patterns that you can apply here. Taste is when those things fail you or maybe they point to two or three possibilities and you need to make a choice. A choice that is consistent with a strategy, consistent with a point of view, consistent with a theme or feeling, and consistent in terms of telling the kind of story you want to tell over time. And this often takes taste. It takes discernment. It takes the ability to look at a pixel or look at a decision or look at an architecture or look at a plan and go that doesn't feel right. It doesn't smell right. One of these doesn't go with the others. And there's a lot of debate and arguments about the role of taste and can it be taught and is there a place for it and can you gather enough data to take things out of this magical realm of taste and make it more scalable and more repeatable and more egalitarian so that anybody can do it. I pretty obviously sit on the fence of some people are better actors and some people are better product managers and some people are better directors. There is a level of inherent taste that either you've learned through good observation or that you're maybe born with even. Yeah, I'm just thinking because we just put out a remastered edition of our episode on product management with Marty Kagan. You and Marty actually had a bit of a disagreement on taste in that episode, Chris, because I think he had a desire to demystify it and say that taste is something that you learn that is based on experience, that is based on adhering to your craft and, you know, having that user empathy, having that common sense, and it's built on top of these things. It's applying your experience and applying a point of view in a consistent way that is, in a sense, predictive of how people will experience something. So I do think that with all of these things is like your nature and your nurture, right? The fact that all of these things are learnable doesn't mean also that there isn't a base level of talent that comes for these things. And in a sense, you need a bit of both, right? You need to be the sort of person who is capable of developing good taste. And then you need to do the hard work to really refine that good taste. And, you know, when we call it taste, it's because you just know things without knowing why you know them. And it feels like taste, right? But it's nearly like it's that system one in your brain, the sort of the more intuitive part that is pattern matching based on a huge level of carefully studied experience and carefully learned knowledge that then manifests as taste. I don't think many people have great taste without any experience. Yeah, and I want to stress here, and I alluded to this earlier, the taste is not just about what it looks like or color choices. The taste is about which decision to make, which feature to build, and what is in scope for a thin slice and what is out of scope. What is a good strategy and what is a bad strategy? Taste applies to all of these things. And so I don't just mean where the buttons go. I really find that for my product management work, taste comes in at every level in every way. And I don't have a strong opinion, Jan, ever, of whether taste is born with it or it's something that you can learn, except to say that I agree with you, which I think most things in the world are both. It's both nature and nurture. It's both left and right. The intersection of both things tends to be the truth in most cases. And I think it's true here in taste as well. I guess what I'm trying to get at, Chris, is there is this concept of system one thinking and system two thinking that was popularized in the book Thinking Fast and Slow. And the idea is there's this intuitive part of your brain that just knows things and you don't even know why you know them. And I think what you're saying here is that as much as you have your frameworks and you have your data analysis and you have your user interviews and everything here, there is also this critical element of product management, which is just like, you know what the right thing is. And what I'm saying is that still comes from somewhere. Good taste is the bit that you can't explain, but that is nonetheless important. And I think it is something that you can develop. 
Okay, so the next few now are about craft and about dealing with craftspeople and kind of the hard work of getting stuff done. This next one is actually about the pixels. It's about good design skills. You need great design skills. And so great product managers don't just have taste in terms of knowing a good design when they see it. They're often able to do a little bit of design. They're able to bridge the gap between form and function and to, at the very least, get the UI and the UX a little bit down the road or at least partner with a designer and communicate their thinking clearly enough and in design terms that there is a UI and a UX, a visual experience that the user is going to go through that the product manager has had a great deal of influence over. And so design skills, I think, as a product manager are really important. Absolutely. And I think one of the things here that when we talked about product management in the past, they kind of sit at the intersection of all the different functions, the more technical craft functions. And so to be a good product manager, we go back to point number one, to empathy. You need to actually understand enough about design, understand enough about engineering, which is what we're going to come to next, understand enough about all the different aspects of what goes into making a great product, that you're not just some sort of clueless generalist who doesn't get what's going on, but that you have genuine empathy and a genuine technical connection and understanding with all of your different stakeholders. Yeah, that's right. And so the next major trait, a next level product manager needs, of course, is some level of technical understanding. Because as you said, Yanev, a core part of the job is interacting with all the craftspeople and having some level of understanding with how their job works. So you need to be able to interact with designers and have some level of understanding how design works. And you need to also interact with engineers and have some level of understanding of how the code works and how engineering works so that you can speak with some level of authority, some level of credibility to the engineers about how your requirements, your priorities, your vision connects with their craft. And so that's the next major trait of a next level product manager is some technical understanding. Just don't be a Muppet, right? Like, you know, <laughs> I, engineers can be harsh and can be a bit cynical. And the term Muppet just sort of refers to someone who's just kind of clueless about how things really work. And as a product manager, you want, you need your engineers to respect you. And part of that respect is to show them the respect of understanding what the hell it is that they do, what the challenges are, what the trade-offs are that they are making so that you can help them with that and that you can be a trusted partner to them. Because if you have no idea, they will not trust you. And that is the beginning of the breakdown of a true cross-functional product team. Yeah, and this is also knowing enough to know what you don't know, right? And mm. being really honest and upfront about what you don't know and not stumbling into topics that you don't understand and revealing your naivete and what have you. And I will often, just to talk about this very pragmatically in terms of how I do this, I do have a programming background and I use that word very specifically. I used to program in QBasic and Visual Basic, but I don't have an engineering background. I never shipped production-grade code, certainly not cloud-based software. And so I know enough to be dangerous but I will often stray into areas that I know I don't know enough about, but I'll hang a lantern on it, as they also say in movie and TV production. I will point out, hey guys, I'm way out of my depth now, but I'm making some stabs in the dark and you're going to have to help point me in the right direction. But isn't what we're talking about having this kind of table or this kind of service or this kind of message queue? Is that not how I should think about that? And so it's not about like, pretending to know what you're talking about or needing to know everything that they're doing, but at least knowing enough to say, 
I don't know this part, but help me understand or help me fill in the blanks. And so that's really, really important in maintaining your credibility without feeling like that subject is off limits. I have actually encountered some teams where the engineering team is like, hey, product manager, you're not even allowed to guess at the implementation. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Which is an unhealthy relationship as well. Again, there's a balancing act, right? A product manager shouldn't be prescriptive about timing and about implementation details, but they shouldn't be told to like piss off. They need to have a curiosity and an understanding and then a very, very healthy level of respect for the experts who know what the hell they're doing. Absolutely. I think, you know, you're talking about context sharing, you're talking about humility, honesty, and also having a base level of understanding. I think all of these are ingredients of the soup of working with engineers. Okay, so the next one is project management. So delivering a project is complicated. It often falls on the product manager to be the person who makes sure that the trains run on time, that the show goes on, that all the different pieces are in place to make sure that we have successful delivery over time. Now, this is an interesting one, Chris, because I would say this very much depends on the organization, on the team, on the culture. The point about project management is someone has to do it. Some organizations have a dedicated project manager or scrum master or whatever it is. Many don't. And when there is no dedicated project manager, then someone has to do it. That someone is often, but not always the product manager. I've worked in teams where the engineering lead has been the project manager and the product manager has focused more on these other things, the empathy, the taste, the design, like making sure that we have a good product to build. And the engineering lead is the person who actually makes sure the train runs on time. But I would say, Chris, be interested in your experience that it is probably most common for the product manager to be the project manager. The really important thing here is if you look around to see who the project manager is and you can't see them, then it's you and you better know what you're doing. <laughs> I love that. That's exactly right. If you look around, there's no project manager, it's you. Yeah. So you mentioned Scrum Master. I really dislike the Scrum Master being thought of as a project manager or frankly, the Scrum Master existing at all, because it's not just about project managing the engineers and the scrums. It's about project managing the entire product life cycle and coordinating all the stakeholders and all of their deliverables and all of their interactions with engineering, design, marketing, sales, biz, dev, operations, everything. And you need to bring all of those trains in on time. Sometimes there'll be a product owner and there's this distinction of product manager and product owner. I don't like that term either because it's confusing. It's like, wait a second, who's making decisions about what now? And so if you really want to separate the roles, then I would just call them a bloody project manager. But for my money, I prefer full stack ownership by the product manager. I like giving product managers very focused missions, plenty of time and resources, and letting them do all the things we're discussing on this list, including the coordination and collaboration of all of the craftspeople and bringing everything in on time. Can they get help? Yes. Maybe that help is from an associate product manager or a more junior product manager to them. But I would like to see product managers owning the project to the degree possible. Certainly not scrum masters or product owners and these other confusing titles that feel a little bit sideways to me. I guess just as you were talking, I think there is one configuration that I've experienced that works quite well, which is sort of structured co-ownership of project delivery between the product manager and the engineering lead, where the engineering lead is very much responsible for delivering all the software, making sure the tickets are properly written up and that things are tested and all of that. But the product manager then coordinates the broader program, you know, working with the marketing team, working with customer support, all of that. You work together. So the product manager is a bit more zoomed out. The engineering manager is a bit more zoomed in on delivery of the software, that can be a really great partnership, but you do have to have a very close relationship then between those two people to make it work effectively. 
Yeah, but I would say that more broadly, right? So the engineering manager or the tech lead should be in charge of engineering project management and the product marketer should be in charge of marketing project management, right? At Uber, we have product operations who interacted with the operations team. They should be in charge of project managing the operations relationship. And so you have your lieutenants, if you will, or your peers, your collaborators who are helping to project manage the various craftspeople and pieces of the product. But you need to be the meta project manager. You are the last throat to choke. And you need to own those things coming together and keeping them all aligned. All right. What's our next thing? Attention to detail. And you've written the micromanager in a good way. Tell me about that, Chris. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is very much connected to everything we've discussed so far, which is you need to have empathy, common sense, taste, design, technical, and project skills. And you need to have them to a level of specificity that really makes a difference. This is a mistake I've made in my career. I can't tell you how many times. In particular, a few companies ago, I had this very complicated, very broad vision. And that's a mistake we'll discuss in another day. But I was glossing over the details. And I was complaining to my COO at the time, like, these engineers aren't getting it right. And these things are coming back broken. And he said to me very astutely and in a very welcome way, Chris, this is your fault. You are not being detailed enough. You're not being specific enough. And you need to close the information gap. That changed my mindset entirely. I was like, oh, this is on me, not only to have the empathy and the understanding and even the project management, which I was not doing well enough either, but I needed to get down into the weeds of the pixels and the words and the deadlines and the scope and exactly which engineer is working on that thing again. And again, the balance here is not (laughs) sitting next to everyone and telling them what to do, but being interested in and clear about the details that matter. And many, many of the details really matter. Some of this, Chris, will depend on the level of seniority of cross-functional peers and so on. But you distinguished it in a good way, which is I think the product manager needs to be across the details and needs to be accountable for the details, right? The way everything ultimately fits together, that it provides a good product experience, that is on the product manager. Now, if they have senior partners who they can pretty much trust and they just have a look and it's always how it should be, then that's great. If you have more junior partners and you need to be a little bit more micromanagery, to your point, to make sure all the details are right, then do that. So that is situational and that is something where you need to, again, understand understand how the rest of your team works and the level that the rest of your team is at in order to know the right thing to do. But yeah, it's an interesting point, right? Where you want to be on the big picture. You don't want to micromanage people really. You want them to be autonomous, but then the details do matter. And if you don't know the details, if you don't know how your product works, then that's bad. And, you know, I've seen the extremes of that where product ships and the product manager isn't sure exactly how it looks like, how it works until it's actually in production. The engineers are like, yeah, you know, we took the designs and we shipped the thing. And then the product manager starts clicking through and they're like, oh, that's not quite how I thought it should be. That's bad. It's surprisingly easy to end up in that situation. So at the very least, having the opportunity to be across all the details in a timely way so that you can actually affect them, I think that is a core part of what a product manager needs to care about and make sure it is done. Yeah, and it's interesting. If you have relatively senior collaborators, but you're still micromanaging, either you're a control freak and you need to look into that, or you are not providing enough context and enough clear requirements, right? And so you need to be interested in the details of the context and requirements you've provided to your colleagues rather than the details of the work they're doing and the choices they're making. So just be aware of being involved in the details of the right abstraction layer. All right, the next couple of points here, the next couple of traits are about people, people management, really. 
and they're related. So the next major trait is consensus building, being a diplomat. The ability to align a team of disparate opinions, disparate skills, disparate perspectives is really hard, right? Engineering is often stereotypically fairly gruff, fairly cynical, fairly down in the weeds of what are that we need to get done. Maybe marketing or sales are off more in flights of creativity. And you are, as a product manager, sitting between these very different personalities with very different priorities. And sometimes they're both in the same room together, right? Because you're having a kind of cross-functional alignment meeting. And so you need to be very, very good at bridging the requirements gaps, the perception gaps, the perspective gaps, and finding, I wouldn't say a middle ground, but finding the right ground for your taste and intuition and empathy and communicating that clearly and bringing everybody together around that. And so it's a difficult job. Bringing everyone to consensus and helping everyone stay on consensus and to remember the consensus that they had and to do work in alignment with that consensus. And so it's so important, especially when you have customer support saying, customers are complaining about this and sales saying, I can't sell unless I promise this. And the business saying, we need to increase revenue by this. And the designer saying, this design needs to be fixed because of this. And the engineers are saying, we need to pay off this technical debt. And it's like, <laughs> you need to be bringing everybody to a common ground that is, again, it's not born from compromise. It's born from what is the right thing to do and help everybody understand why, irrespective of their perspective, it is the right thing that you are going to go do because you are ultimately the decision maker for your product. That last point was the one I was going to make. Consensus often sounds like compromise, often sounds like middle ground. And that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here, I would nearly call it commitment building, where we're saying, okay, we have our debates, we have our discussions, we have our different points of view. In the end, we all come together. We have decisions that are made, however those decisions are made. And there are different ways of making the decisions. But once the decisions are made, everyone understands them and commits to them and puts everything they can into executing in accordance with that decision. It might be a decision that some people disagree with quite deeply, but that's this concept of disagree and commit, right? Where you have your debates, you have the opportunity to be heard, but ultimately, once a decision is made, you must be committed to it. And that's a cultural thing. But also, to your point, Chris, you can make it a whole lot easier by using the art of diplomacy. And a lot of it is about having people feel heard, and not just feel heard, but be heard, right? And so that all these perspectives come together, and it's not a democracy, and it's not like a mushy law of averages, but that everyone's input and everyone's perspectives have been respected, and that they have been brought to bear on making the ultimate decisions. And a lot of that is quite a relational art, understanding people, understanding what's important to them, understanding how to speak their language, and then bringing them all together to a decision that everyone can feel comfortable committing to, even if it's not what they would have done. Yeah. And one of your tools here, and we're going to discuss it soon, is vision and storytelling. But two other very important tools, and we've got whole episodes about this, are alignment and escalation. So we have a whole episode about alignment and maintaining and building alignment, and a whole episode about escalation, what happens when that alignment can't be done at your level. And these are important parts of building, but more importantly, maintaining consensus over time. Okay, so related to that is the topic of diplomacy. And this is really about dealing with egos and tensions and being the voice that restores order. How does that look to you, Chris? Yeah, this is very, very closely related to consensus building, of course, right? It is a form of building consensus. But diplomacy is what happens when things start to break down, right? So there are egos involved, there are tensions flaring, there are perspectives that are just unreconcilable. And so this trait is really about maintaining a level head and a clear voice that brings everybody back to the table and back to the consensus 
and back to common sense and common ground. And so it's very much related to consensus building, but it is when things go wrong. And I must admit here, this is an area where I struggle with when I feel like we've gone around the debate one too many times, or we've slipped off the consensus one too many times, or there are perspectives that feel unreconcilable. I can get a little bit, a uh, little bit hot under the collar and uh, I've been called out for that. One of my colleagues at Uber said to me, he knows I'm a Star Trek nerd. And he said, you know, you've got to be Captain Picard and you've got to keep a level head and diplomacy the shit out of this. And so that was a really good reminder for me in that particular heated moment. Maybe just one thing I'd add to that is you mentioned egos. A lot of this is about being relatively egoless when you are a product manager yourself. And I think that can be hard. Like you said, Chris, it's like, okay, you are trying to create an amazing product. It is not about you. It is about the product. And so when you are marshalling all of these different people, all of these different perspectives, all of these different egos, don't do it in service of what you want or what is right for you, but what is right for the product. Again, going back to the Marty Kagan episode we recently remastered, you know, he talks about the fact that good product managers, they don't have to be the people that most of the ideas come from. It's about making sure that you bring all the ideas together and that you listen and that you then bring that to bear on creating a great product for your customers. Yeah, I've found actually where my diplomacy fails the most is when I feel like I'm under an enormous amount of pressure to deliver, whether because of the OKRs or because in my current work with advisory where founders really need to achieve something before the runway runs out or what have you. And so sometimes it feels like we've kind of gone around the horn one too many times and I'm like, right, we're done now. We need to move on. And so there can be an enormous amount of pressure on the product manager to deliver on the OKRs. And it can be really a little bit frustrating when everybody's dragging their feet. Okay, the next couple of traits are really about data. And the next character trait for a killer product manager is pattern matching. Pattern matching about the market, pattern matching about consumer behavior, pattern matching about business requirements and customer complaints. It's about being able to look at perhaps disparate data points. And when I say data, I mean telemetry, market signals, intuition, empathy, customer tickets, sales feedback, all the data. And being able to recognize, actually, they're saying this thing, but what they really mean is that thing. And that thing is the same as that thing. And if we do this one thing, it resolves all of this tension. And it's not just pattern matching from feedback, but pattern matching in terms of the user experience. Like, no, we don't actually need three different features to do this. Actually, the job to be done is this, and we can kill all of those birds with this one stone, this one elegant, simple stone. And so it's really important to be able to pattern match about the external world, external to your product and pattern match about your internal world, about what the product features and patterns are, and try to create more reductive, more simple, more easy to understand metaphors in the product itself. So to me, when we talk about this, this is nearly the same thing as when we were talking earlier about taste, right? It is very, very similar. And Chris, what we're saying here is, okay, taste is about taking all of your experience over your career and over your lifetime and using that to sort of, in a sense, intuitively make the right decisions. And I think pattern matching is the analytical dual to that, where we're saying we're taking all of these inputs, all of this data, but not just data in like the technical spreadsheet sense, anecdotes, facts about the world, all of these like disparate data that's in different forms, putting that into your brain and kind of allowing, again, that system one in your brain to just match that against everything that it's known and seen and come to unique, deep insights in that way. 
Maybe the delineation, the draw here is if empathy and taste is about pattern matching across your career, then this is about pattern matching in the short term. Okay, I have a lot of requirements or a lot of features or a lot of buttons. How do mm. I reduce this in this particular circumstance for this particular problem? And so perhaps the difference between these is just about time. Now, again, this next one is related. It's about data, but this is about the ability to do your own data analysis, which is you should be able to run your own SQL queries and your own rummaging around the charts and graphs and data sets and being able to have this kind of familiarity with data at your fingertips. And I mean, now I'm talking about hard data, telemetry and market research and really getting in the weeds there. The very best product managers and actually the very best founders have the numbers at their fingertips. They know how to get those numbers. They know how to slice and dice those numbers and they know how to put them in spreadsheets and SQL queries, and they go get it themselves. And they don't wait for anybody else to do that. Or at the very worst case, they know how to work with a data scientist to ask the right questions of the data and to arrive at the right answers from the data and to think about seasonality and to think about bias and to think about causality and to think about all the things that you need to ask of the data to arrive at good conclusions. So actually, I want to separate this out a little bit. I'm talking both about the ability to go get the data and then the ability to ask the right questions and interrogate the data and draw the right conclusions from the data. And those are two different but related things under the heading here of data analysis. It's really interesting, Chris, because as time has passed, I've developed a more nuanced view of this. So first of all, yes, understanding data is a fairly technical skill. And when we talk about the need for product managers to be technical, you know, we've talked about it in the context of engineering, but I think this is the other area where having that strong technical ability, as you said, to interpret and interrogate data is valuable. Here's the but though. Data analysis is really hard. And in particular, it's really easy to get it wrong. The thing is, the difference between the outputs of a correctly formulated query and the outputs of an incorrectly formulated query are impossible to distinguish unless you already know what the outcome should be, right? So it's very easy to analyze data, get it wrong, and then you start making decisions of wrong analysis. I've seen this so many times. You know, at Google, we had this problem where product managers would often build their own dashboards on top of data that was generated by the systems that the engineers built. But there are all these little booby traps in the data that if you didn't know about a certain thing, Thing, you didn't exclude certain data, then it gave you the wrong conclusion and so on. And so the dashboards were very often wrong. And so I guess my feeling now is that it's really important for a product manager to be able to analyze data, but they need to partner with someone more technical at a larger organization, probably a specialized data engineer at a smaller organization. It'll be the software engineers themselves to get that data in a form that is clean enough to be able to analyze without screwing it up. It's just too easy. But yes, if you are allergic to data, that will limit your effectiveness as a product manager because you will not get the full picture of what is happening with your product. Yeah, and being comfortable with data is also knowing when to ignore the data and understand the data is just not useful. You know, I've told this story a few times on the podcast, but at Uber, I was asked to really move a certain metric and pay very close attention to it in the OKRs. Eventually, I had a little outburst of like, I don't give a shit about these numbers. They're the wrong metrics. This is the wrong thing to focus on. And we're looking at the wrong data and we're looking at it for the wrong reasons. Ultimately, the data can only get you so far. So understanding how to ask the right questions of a data scientist or a data engineer understanding how to get the data for yourself or at least understand that it was gotten properly and understanding how to ask the right questions of the data you're looking at and understanding how to draw the right conclusions of that data. And this is really a long chain there, a sequence there, and it's very easy to get any of those things wrong. And so data analysis is a very, very difficult part of a product manager's life. 
This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Until Now. From brand and product design to product management through to go-to-market and product strategy, Until Now lets you augment your existing team with the skills required to achieve the best outcomes for your startup. So check out their work and get in touch at untilnow.com.au. Okay, we're getting to the home stretch here, Yanev, and the next set of traits, in fact, the final set of traits, are really all about your own personal inherent character, personality, and contribution to the product thinking and product process. And so the first one is vision, having a vision for your product. So after you've applied your empathy and your taste and your data analysis, and you've spoken to marketing, you've spoken to sales, you've spoken to design, you've spoken to engineering, you've spoken to your customers, your users, you've spoken to everybody, you need to triangulate a vision. You need to understand what the future looks like for your product and for the world should your product succeed. And so you need to construct that with clarity. You need to communicate that with vivid detail. And it needs to animate and motivate everyone around you to do their best work and to do work that is aligned with your intention. And I find often this piece of the puzzle is missing from CEOs, from engineering leaders. It's missing from everybody, but it is most painfully felt when it's missing from product. What ends up happening is that everybody's very excited about Agile. Everybody wants to ship quick, fast, small, thin releases, but the releases are not laddering up to anything. They're not going anywhere. It's just a bunch of incremental nonsense. And if you are trying to go from zero to one, that is death. If you're trying to eke out an extra percent or two or three, then maybe you can live your life that way. But if you're trying to create step function change in either a new company or in an old company looking to do new things, you need to take a giant step back and figure out where you're headed and what you'd like the world to be like. I actually really like the metaphor that you came up with, Chris, a couple of episodes ago, which is you don't want to be the thermometer, you want to be the space heater right? You yeah. need to say, okay, you know, what does this room look like when it's warmer and more comfortable? <laughs> <laughs> to be a space heater, you need to know in what way you're heating up the room. And I think that's really what the vision is. Like if you can't paint a picture of the future that is different from the present, then you can't really be that space heater. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, the next killer trait of a product manager is tempering this idea a little bit, right? You need pragmatism. You need to be a realist. So I'm often saying you want a big, bold, ambitious vision that is the triangulation of all of the possible data that describes how the world will change when you're successful. And then you need to some degree put that aside and engage with the details of reality. That does not mean necessarily being constrained by those details. You want to think creatively and what have you. That doesn't mean abandoning your long-term vision, but it does mean making pragmatic and judicious compromises about the present in order to make progress towards your future. And this is something that Yanev, you and I talk about in pretty much every episode, but there's a difference between short-term compromises and corruptions that break your long-term trajectory. And this is again where the art of it and the taste of it and the empathy of it comes in, but you need to take your vision and engage with the day-to-day -day reality of it with pragmatism, with clear, sober eyes, and help move your team through all the details and all the craft from where they are, both in their mindset and their craft, to where you want them to be. Let's see if I can break your space heater metaphor by loading too much onto it. But it's like, okay, let's say your vision is to make the room warmer than it currently is. And then you're like, okay, so what we're going to have is this thing that uses nuclear fusion to warm up the room. Let's get <laughs> going on a nuclear fusion space heater, right? 
or let's, you know, have a perpetual motion machine. Let's forget about like using any energy at all. It's just going to magically heat the room. It's like, Hey, no, there's the laws of physics. There is the amount of capital available to us. There's the amount of time available to us. We need to create the first version of warming the room, or at least the first step on our journey to warming the room in a way that's pragmatic and realistic. Having a dream, having an idea is not the same as being able to execute on that vision all at once. You have to remember that you might have a dream of like instantaneous carbon neutral room warming, but you're going to have to get there step by step and you're going to have to learn along the way. You're going to have to earn the right to bring that full vision into a reality. And that's where the pragmatism and the realism comes in and tempers. Chris, tempers is exactly the right word because you don't want to break the vision. You don't even want this to have, in a sense, equal weight to the vision. The vision is still the North Star, but you temper the vision with pragmatism so that you're able to achieve it. Yeah. And in my experience, Yanev, pragmatism is in abundant supply in the world <laughs> from leaders and investors and product managers. And so I want to counter this a little bit with be careful of your pragmatism. You know, I'm often talking to founders about what their vision is and reminding them actually of what their vision is and how their choices are corrupting their vision. And I'll say something like, hey, guys, remember, we want to heat the room and what we need is a space heater. And very often the founder or an executive or an investor will say to me, but Chris, we don't have a space heater. And I'm like, well, we're going to bloody well build one. Like, like we're just going to like, make a blanket instead. It's like, no, yeah, it's just like, it's absolutely mind boggling. And I have these meetings. I had two or three of these meetings yesterday where it's like, Hey guys, remember we have this vision of doing this thing. And the feedback was basically some version of, but Chris, we don't have a space heater. I'm like, go out and fucking buy one. Like it, this is not rocket science. And I'm often fond of saying if Elon Musk is able to launch a rocket into space and then have it land back on its ass in the middle of the ocean, you can add that button. You can buy a space heater. You can make that happen. You first need to decide what are you trying to do? Oh, heat the room? Great. Let's deal with the hard problems of heating the room. I actually posted about this yesterday where I said building a flexible system that can handle any requirement or dealing with constantly changing requirements from a wide array of different customers and different problem sets is really hard. Building an opinionated product and selling it to only one kind of customer is really hard. They're both hard. But when you stop doing the first one, you can focus on the hard thing of doing the second one. And so, as I said to one of the executives yesterday, yes, you're absolutely correct. Doing this opinionated product is really hard. Building the space heater, to keep going with the analogy, is really hard. But you are now bringing up all of the hard things you need to engage with. You're finally thinking about the hard problems you need to solve because you're no longer thinking about those other hard things you're doing, which are distracting you from it. And so now we get to engage with the hard problem of building the space heater. Thank you very much. Again, you can hear me. I get a little bit hot on the collar sometimes because it's like, because I had explained this idea literally 10 times in the last 10 meetings. <laughs> and so you have to get over this hump, guys. Like pragmatism is important. Clear-eyed pragmatism is important, but it is in too much abundant supply in the world. So you need to have it, but watch your pragmatism. It shouldn't corrupt your vision. That's my rant for the episode, Jenna. It's Chris's, it's Chris's rant. You've got to have both. Like you're right. Yes. There are too many pragmatists without a vision. There are also quite a few visionaries who are just unrealistic dreamers. If you have both, that's the killer combo. That's what you need to be. All right. Now we're on personal traits. The other thing is about having long-term discipline and being a marathon runner. So it's easy to say this is a marathon, not a sprint. But what does that actually look like in practice, Chris? Yeah, you touch on this, Yanev, right? Pragmatism is about recognizing that you start with a space heater, even if your goal is a thermonuclear reactor or a perpetual motion machine. 
And the long-term discipline is to realize and remember, yeah, we started with that space heater, but the next one's going to be an even better space heater. And the next one's going to be a Nest thermostat with self-adjusting temperature. And the next one's going to be a really efficient machine. And the next, the final one will be that perpetual motion machine. And so that requires long-term discipline. It requires you to not just do one pragmatic step and then forget your vision. You spin off into some other direction. It's like the next step you take has to be the next pragmatic step along the trajectory towards that vision. So next level product managers have that kind of long-term discipline. And they also know how to delay gratification. Another thing that I find myself doing a lot of is the founder or some other executive will come to me and say, hey, we just figured out an incredibly exciting and sexy idea that we want to go do. We think it'll be even more compelling. And I have to remind people, yes, but right now we're doing just the table stakes. We're doing the stuff that actually is like the core happy user experience. And if we jump ahead to this other more exciting thing, we will have left a giant hole in the product and that exciting thing will fail. So we need to have the patience and the discipline to finish out what we started and then go do the next adjacency, the next exciting thing. This is obviously particularly true if the exciting thing you figured out is not a pivot, right? If you figure out, obviously you're in the wrong place, you need to adjust and be agile. But when you figure out the next exciting thing, you can't just skip to it. You need to go through the process and get there in steps and have the discipline to hold everybody accountable to this methodical process. You can't finish a marathon by doing mile 26 first, right? The finish line is 26 miles away. You've got to do the first mile before you do the second, the second before you do the third. And you need to know when you're doing those that you are nowhere near the finish line. So it's long-term discipline and, like I said, Chris, it's stamina and resilience. The idea that the finish line is a long way away and you know that, and yet you are just going to keep plugging away and you're going to do a methodical, well-executed run towards that finish. Now, it is even harder than a marathon because, of course, this analogy is imperfect. When you are doing a startup marathon, you don't even know how long it's going to be, but it's probably going to be at least 26 miles. The odds that it's a sprint are very short. The odds that it actually is an ultra marathon and not a regular marathon are reasonably high. So you really do need to have that sort of Stockdale paradox style resilience where you're like, I don't know when this is going to end. It could get pretty bad before it gets good. It's probably not going to end soon, but I believe that I will prevail. Yeah. And, you know, the key words here are thrash versus agile. You need to have agility. You need to be able to recalculate and reformulate from milestone to milestone, from release to release. This is the major tenet of agile. And you don't want to set your plan in concrete, but you do want to set it in wet clay and you want to avoid thrash. Thrash comes from all places, from sales and support and business and marketing and competitors. And you as the product manager are really the first and last line of defense against thrash. And so long-term discipline and clear-eyed pragmatism are your essential tools for making sure you are the mitigator of thrash for the craftspeople, the very skilled people you work with, designers and engineers and marketers, to make sure that they're able to do their best work. All right. The third last trait of a killer product manager is experience, Yanev. Now, this is a little bit unfair because obviously if you're getting started in the field, you will not be born with experience. So this does bias towards older hands who've been there and done that. But if you're looking for a super senior product manager, you obviously want to be looking for people who have well-worn, hard-won experience that helps them with their empathy and their intuition and their taste and their pragmatism and their visioneering and so on and so forth. And so, again, as I said at the very top of the episode, no product manager is going to have all of these things and certainly junior product managers won't have experience, but you are either building a baseball team where you have different people with different skills and or 
the more senior person you're hiring or the more senior role you need, the more you should expect that they have more of these things and they go deeper in all of these things. And of course, experience is one of those things that a more senior role requires. We talked a lot about taste and pattern matching and all of these things. These are things that only come with experience and there is no substitute. And, you know, I like to say when I was younger, I thought focusing on experience was some sort of weird protection racket that old people ran to privilege other old people, which is partly true because the only thing you can't shortcut to is experience, but it really does help you avoid these pitfalls and landmines and all these different ways in which things can go wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I've found in my most nihilistic about generative AI, I'm like, well, all the jobs are done. My job is done. I'm dead. <laughs> There's nothing left to do. We have no more episodes to record. We've run out of topics. In fact, all of our <laughs> episodes now are just really scripted by ChatGPT anyway. So, but, you know, I realize as I interact with founders and executives that they don't actually know what question to ask ChatGPT. They don't know what the next question is, what the next step is. Now, of course, maybe you ask ChatGPT, what's my next question? But it, it doesn't have all the context and it doesn't have your in particular circumstances, which of course will also change. But experience is about knowing what questions to ask as well as what answers to give. Another quote that I love here is information is data in context and knowledge is information in context. And really wisdom is knowledge in context. That's that last piece that I add. The first part is a well-known saying. Wisdom is knowing which knowledge to apply in which circumstance. And so it's really only experience that gets you to that wisdom part. And that's where I think you go from being a really great product manager to being incredible. All right, the last two traits now. The second last trait is passion. Now, this one you do not need experience for. And in fact, if you're young, you may have more passion than some of these old farts with gray hair. Or no hair. Or no hair. Yanev, I didn't want to say it, but thank you for letting me, <laughs> thank you for introducing that. But you know, whether you're young or old, you need to be able to, upon entering a room, get everybody fired up. You know, I think 10 or 20% of my role as an advisor is changing the temperature in the room, not in terms of vision, but in terms of enthusiasm. Really being a cheerleader for everybody and everything saying, we can get this done. And I'm excited about this, genuinely excited about this. I'm excited about making a dent in the world and changing a part of the behavior of the world in solving this hard problem, eliminating this middleman, removing inefficiency and waste. I am genuinely excited and making that excitement contagious both with the tone of your voice and the clarity of your thinking and just the general way you engage with people and bring them along on the journey. And so I just find this such an underrated, underrated skill. And I find myself naturally having, you know, I'm terrible at numbers, but I think I'm naturally enthusiastic. So I think passion and enthusiasm is a really great skill and an important skill for leadership in general and product management specifically. Yeah, it's really necessary. We were just talking about long-term discipline and how this is a marathon, but without a fixed finish line. So maybe it's an ultra marathon. You are not going to get to the end of this thing if you're not excited about getting to the end of this thing. There are many, many stops on the way where you're like, you know what? This is too fucking hard. If you don't care about getting to the finish line, if you're not passionate, the odds that you get there are pretty low. So this is not like some nice little bonus extra thing. This is the fuel that allows you to break through the pain that, you know, you're inevitably going to confront on your startup journey. You know, I was speaking to another founder the other day and they said, I don't necessarily agree with this, but they said, startups are hell. <laughs> like, okay, well, that's extreme, but okay. There's definitely a little bit of hell in there, no matter how well you cut it. If you want to get through hell, you better care about what's on the other side. Absolutely, Yanev. And we are on the final trait. Oh, hell yeah. We're at the end of this ultra marathon, number 17. <laughs> 
Yes, the final trait of a next level product manager is curiosity and truth seeking, being the eternal student, never complacent, always inquisitive. The day you stop learning is the day you stop being effective. And the reason I have this one last is because it really is the capper on everything else we just said. Irrespective of whether you think you have empathy or not, or whether you think you have common sense or not, whether you think you have taste or not, whether you're good at design or good at engineering or good at project management, if you're a diplomat or a consensus builder or a pattern matcher, none of that matters if you have no self-awareness about the fact that you might be wrong, so some amount of humbleness and the ability to seek the truth at all costs. And as you said, Yanev, it's about the product and not about your ego. It's not about being right or having all the ideas. It's about bringing everybody along, helping them do their best work, helping the best ideas bubble to the surface and being really honest about what matters and when it matters and why it matters and who brought that idea to the table. I, just the other day, I was presenting a product design to a team and made sure to shout out the designer who was not in the room and said, hey, this stuff actually is not my work. I obviously had a heavy hand in guiding it, but I want to give a shout out to the product designer and here's his work. Being honest about where the work came from, being honest where the data and the investigations take you, and being honest about your limitations and getting help when you need it. Absolutely. I, I think this is so critical. A lot of these things, by the way, apply not just to product managers, they especially apply to founders who often, as a founder early on, you kind of are the product manager in a lot of ways. There is no way, no matter how experienced you are, we talked about experience, no matter how experienced you are, there's no way you know everything you need to know to do a really great job. We've talked about building the thing that builds the thing. And then we've talked about really your role is to build yourself. You're building the thing that builds the thing that builds the thing. That is curiosity, truth-seeking, humility, always learning. If you are not learning, you are getting worse. And if you're getting worse, you are not going to succeed. So don't ever be complacent. This is not the sort of role where you ever achieve mastery. If you want to achieve mastery, then you're in the wrong game. This is the game of being an eternal student. Yeah, and I want to really highlight that last point you made. Why is it that if you're not learning, you're getting worse? And the answer is because things are always changing, like the best tools, the best ideas, the best principles and patterns. And entropy is universal, right? You're personally experiencing entropy. You're forgetting things. You're misremembering things. You haven't touched something for a long time. It's been offloaded from RAM. And so because the state of the art is always changing and you are personally experiencing entropy, you are just by definition just getting worse at all times unless you are actively learning and refreshing your personal capabilities and skills. My wife calls it rusting. She says, my brain is rusting. <laughs> and so that's what my wife, Alia, calls it. So yeah, don't rust. All right, so we have made it to the end of the ultra marathon that is the 17 traits of an exceptional next level product manager. Chris, this has been fun. Folks, I hope you've learned a whole bunch. And like I said, a lot of these things apply not just to product managers, but to founders and other folks working on product teams. Now, if you're looking at this list of 17, you're like, damn, there are a few of these things that I'm missing that are going to get in the way of my being able to have great success in my startup. And I want some help, Chris. This is exactly where you come in. How can people work with you? Yeah, that's right, Yanev. I love these really organic, very like seamless transitions we make. I spend hours working on them, mate. I spend hours. <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, yes, <laughs> I am often playing the role of either a chief product officer for companies where I am just acting as the product manager and exhibiting hopefully many of these skills that we just discussed, or I'm coaching product managers and product leaders to have more of these skills and to execute them well. And so, yeah, if you're interested in learning more about that, feel free to check out chrissard.com advisory. 
And I also want to put a plug in for my newsletter. If you go to chrissard.com slash newsletter, you'll see my newsletter. Please sign up there. I share some of these thoughts even before they make it into the podcast. If you were a subscriber, you would have gotten this list uh, weeks ago. So please subscribe there. That's right, folks. We want you enmeshed deeper in our burgeoning content empire. Join Chris's (laughs) newsletter. Join the Startup Podcast newsletter. Follow us on YouTube. There are so many great ways to engage with us. And if you like what we put out on the podcast, odds are you'll like all this other stuff too. All right, awesome, Yanev. Thanks for going through this with me. Cheers, Chris. Have a good one. This episode of the Startup Podcast was brought to you by the team at Until Now. Until Now's experts work alongside you and your team, which means that they level you up as they go. I've worked with these folks at Airtasker, and they're behind the recent fantastic rebrand of this very podcast. They are the real deal. Check out their work and get in touch at untilnow.com.au. That's untilnow.com.au.